Hello listeners and welcome to the Afriota podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwet world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwet episodes, which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're headed to Southern Africa to explore the Lundu Kingdom. And this is part one. A shout out to my Southern Africans out there. Afriwetu has landed on your borders. Before we begin, a very quick reminder, please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu, where we shall be putting up interesting facts, stories, updates, and links, should you wish, for any further study for all you lovely people. But for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. Right, good people, let's get our maps to see where we are on the continent today. So if you head down to the southeastern coast and then go to the Zambezi River and that whole northern area, you see it? Good. So that was a part of the territory. Now, if from there you can trace your way across to the East African coast, this kingdom stretched across there. And we shall also see this is what explains its wealth, which emerged from the trade with that region. So a little bit of background. If you're with us for the last two civilizations about the Maravi Empire earlier this series, episodes four and five, which talked about the Kalonga, and episodes seven and eight of the Undi, you will remember the origin stories and how all of them are interrelated. So it started with the Kalonga polity, which was what I'd call the base empire. Then you had the Undi that stemmed from what was an internal power struggle, which resulted in his leaving his home together with a number of his kin from the Firi royal clan to find a new base. And now let's just pause for a few minutes to retell this origin of the Lundu origin for those who are playing catch up and just to give a little bit of context for today's civilization. The original Kalonga, Chinkolefiri, upon leaving what descendants have identified as the Luba Empire by at least the 15th century, in fact, there's some who claim as early as the 13th century, headed out to conquer new lands. Whilst on this migration, he died and was succeeded by his nephew from the matrilineal line, which was the mode of succession. This new Kalonga then took up the mantle and got his people to Mankamba, which became one of the major cities, the capital actually, and the base from which the Maravi Empire then expanded. 
In the course of the empire's growth, there were breakaways in the form of nobles leaving to set up their own polities and kingdoms. The two Afriwetu has interest in were the Undi covered earlier this year, as I mentioned, and Kafuiti, who shall hear more about in a few. As it was from here that the Lundu civilization, the latter, the Kafuiti, it came from and emerged as a dominant power in the late 16th century. When one tells the story of the Lundu, a few things to note. The people are called the Manyanja, and there is a special mention of the Zimba, who play a very significant role in this history. And then there's a man called Muzura, which is a name to remember. These last two we shall unpack in part two, but I thought it'd be good to share it now. There are layers upon layers upon layers when it comes to these linked civilizations. So I do hope that unlike me, you will not get very confused. So we're all together now, yeah? As we head into the origin story, well, the origin from the origin story. So going to that, if you go back to the first of the Maravi episodes, Afriwet did cover some aspects of this, and we did speak of the infamous exits. So this is more like a refresher with a, a few added bits in between. So the story of the Lundu, as we've said, goes back to the story of Kafuiti. Lundu was actually the Kafuiti, sorry. He was one of the Kalonga's kinsmen and a man of noble fiery birth. He was forced to exit Manghamba, his home, due to internal succession disputes. And in his case, he was the target of a successful negative propaganda campaign. Kafuti's foes had very cleverly tarnished his names with claims of the crime of sorcery, one of the worst offenses in the kingdom. So what happened? Basically, this was at the time when the empire was facing a series of disasters and catastrophes in the form of droughts and plagues, one of which is recorded, I kid you not, is lions attacking the kingdom. Kafuiti was blamed for these events. His enemies claimed that he was practicing evil magic, a crime so severe that if found guilty, one could be executed. So this was not something to take lightly. Unable to disprove the rumors that became fact, Kafuiti took the best course of action and left, taking his family and followers with him, amongst them his nephew, Lundu. Kafuiti managed to get settled and he established his own kingdom. Very nice, very neat. So let's leave him there and move to our Lundu, the founder of today's kingdom. Lundu decided to leave his kinsmen and set up on his own, taking with him his own followers, including the all-important rain callers. He was ambitious in his quest, leaving around 1500s and arriving and then setting up his capital at Mbewe Wamitego. We will see later how he and his descendants continue to grow and expand this kingdom later on in the show, which also included swallowing up Kafuiti's kingdom, his own uncle, into his kingdom and thus becoming the dominant power. 
one that threatened the Kalonga with whom there were occasional military conflicts. And with that in mind, I think now is a great time to move and look at this expansion briefly. The real stuff comes when you look at the military in part two. I know, I know, you'll just have to come back for that. Anyway, Lundu, having established his central base, then progressed to centralizing power as he set up on his mission of expansion. He was by all accounts very successful, and his kingdom grew through the military campaigns, becoming powerful in the region. Lundu controlled a significant part of the north of the Lower Zambezi, which boosted the trade for the kingdom to the detriment, or so it seemed, to the Kalonga, who himself controlled the southern part of the Zambezi and east of Lake Malawi. The Lundu continued to expand east, swallowing the Lolo and Makua, which then became subordinate vassal states, and their chiefs, tributary headmen. He continued on his quest and conquered territory across the way to the east coast of the continent, getting pretty close to the Indian Ocean. By the 18th century, the kingdom stretched further south towards the Ruo rivers. The Tonga people using loyalists to conquer the lands on the Lundu's behalf by going to rule over them. In time, the Lundu kingdom, as mentioned before, absorbed the Kafuiti territory and many others, raising, it pro raising its profile within the region, the empire, and raising the blood pressure of the Galonga. Their uneasy relationship with the periods of hot and cold tensions and war between the 1960s and the, 19th, uh, the, the 1620s and the 1630s. By the time this mission of expansion was at its height, the Lundu's wealth and status had grown to such an extent that he was seen to be second only to the Kalonga. I think now is a good time to talk about the rulers and the governance of the Lundu, so let's just quickly head over. So before we begin, I thought it'd be worth it to share an interesting thing about the naming convention, similarly as we did for Kalonga and the Undi, and relating to the, those civilizations. This will therefore sound very familiar to those who listened in to these previous episodes, but I don't think it'll hurt to hear it just one last time. So what is in a name? The Lundu kingdom is eponymous, meaning it was named after the original Lundu who left Kafuiti. And then on top of that, his name then became the title of the ruler as well as a dynastic name. So thus Lundu does come up in all these different ways in the course of this episode and next and in the study of this kingdom. So to answer the question, what is in a name? Well here, and to be honest, in all of our African heritage, names have very significant meanings. Now, the center of power where the Lundu sat was, as we said before, Mbewewa Mitengo. It is from here that he ran the vast kingdom with strong governance and administrative support from his court. A very quick segue here. Outside the capital, there was a sacred area where there was a group of rocks, and one of them was named the Mfunda or Shifunda Walundu, which translated to the origin of the Lundu. It is claimed that the Mbona, whom we shall hear a lot more about in part two, when fleeing the Lundu, found rest there. But that is not the point of what I want to raise in this part. 
What I wanted to raise is, this is where all Lundus went to be crowned, sitting atop and being clothed and adorned with the instruments of rule. And at the base of the sacred place, offerings and libations were made to the spirits, the ancestors, and in later years to the Mbona, a practice that was carried out for generations. After being crowned, the Lundu then had access to a formidable military, both internally with the support of the Saopa, who were the loyal army commanders leading the troops across the kingdoms, to external armies, and here we speak mainly of the Zimba soldiers. Being that the conquests were successful, it meant that the Lundu controlled a large territory, and this meant he ensured there was a representative from his courts to manage these vassal states. This representative was known as the Akazembe, and they ensured that the states not only kept loyal, but also that they contributed their tributes, which increased the wealth and boosted the kingdom's economy, and served as a reminder as to just who was in charge. These tributes were paid annually from the captured states, as well as any villages within the Lundu territory. The kingdom's economy was reliant on much more, though, than these tributes. In fact, the lands it had were more valuable in that they provided access to trade routes and goods. So let's nicely and oh so smoothly look at Lundu's trade and economy. See what I did there? So... The location of the kingdom and the territory under its control was the real big money maker. It lay strategically across the lucrative trade routes from inland and the coast. It not only used this to become a huge trading hub, but also used it to its own goods, also used it to trade in its own goods and services with merchants from all sides. The key trading partners included the big players like the Yao from about the 18th century and the Arabs and even the Kalonga. The latter, in a much more roundabout way, he mostly used the routes controlled by the Lundu to get their ivory and other goods across to the eastern coastline. The kingdom had access to mines that produced copper, iron ore and gold. These metals in themselves were worth a great deal both then and now. Then outside of mining, this kingdom was also heavily involved in the ivory trade, which is found locally, and was under strict controlled hunting expeditions. So lucrative was this trade that in later years, the European foreigners tried to take it from the African hands. And at the start, from about the 1500s, the foreigners met with very strong resistance to this grabbing and were defeated time and time again by the military. And to drive home the point, they found that even where they had made headway and gained influence, the military sacked these areas. Now, moving from elephants to another great source of wealth, salt. Salt was big business on the continent. Listeners may remember from our previous Afriwetu to journeys to the ancestors in the West and Northwest, right? Well, it was the same here in the southeastern shores, well, south central eastern shores. In this case, having proximity to the salt mines and deposits, which the kingdom then leveraged and were able to get into the lucrative trade. And then 
Internally, the land was fertile and agriculture was a key thing, having as it did both wet and dry land suitable for a vast array of produce. So on the one end, the kingdom grew cotton, which it then traded as a crop or in the form of a finished good, such as the famed Manchila Mashira cloth, which was specially woven by the Manyanja. On the other side of the kingdom, in the wetlands, there was an abundance of rice, which was also traded. And this brings in an interesting aspect of the kingdom, which leads us to looking at society, basically in terms of migrations during the drought seasons from one end of the kingdom to the next. And let's look at that in our last section of the day, society. The Lundu Kingdom's people called themselves, as we've said before, the Manyanja, as we've heard. The term itself means one of two things that Afrobertu found. Either it relates to the people, to being the people of the Nyanja, a water body like the lake or a river, or the people of Nganjo, an iron smelting furnace. The latter is more likely to be the reason, but as always, Afriwetu leans on the descendants of these civilizations to share their views of the name and its origins. Please do so on any of our platforms so we can share with the Afriwatu. Samayanja are a matrilineal society, which is pretty much the norm in this community and around the area. This norm was practiced across all the different levels of society, from the general public right up to the nobility. And how this looked in real life was in a number of ways. The first to highlight is that of succession in noble circles. It would actually be the son of the Lundu's sister, his nephew, who would be selected as the next ruler. His own son was not considered to be in line. And this was a case across all forms of rule including the chiefs, for example. And then in the governance structure, women would be found to be in the higher levels of political leadership and not as some kind of equality drive, but actually part of the norm. Then when it came to the general public, the story, well, to me, gets even more interesting in how it's played out. So let's start with from marriage. So, on marriage, the cultural norm was that on getting married, the husband would move to his wife's village. He would retain land in his own home, but for all intents and purposes, he moved into what was a village that was centered around his wife's mother, aunts, sisters, nieces, whose own husbands had also moved there. This was acceptable as in their own homes, the setup was pretty much the same, i.e. where the husband came from. The authority of the matrilineal line went on even deeper as a woman's kin, her father, uncle's brother, would be the primary father figure's authority and have guardianship over her son. It was from her side that the boy would turn to from a young child into adulthood and the rites of passage including getting married and paying dowry. The father himself would not have a great deal of authority in, his, in this case, but he would for his own nephews and nieces from his own maternal side. These villages, which were led by headmen or chiefs, tended to operate on a communal basis at their core, something that is not uncommon in the majority of African societies. 
This then evolved within this space in terms of how land was distributed and shared. Land was distributed to different families to live in and cultivate. And if the family moved and the land was left untouched for a significant period of time, it would revert back to the community and it would be eligible to be redistributed. Question, does this sound familiar to any of you Afriwatu from your own communities? Please hit us up and let us know. There was a function of society when men would commune to discuss the politics of the day, the issues of the day, and all other things that related to their villages. In later years, this was known as Bualo, the meeting place, which when business was done, turned into a place of socialization and basically fun times. As in every society, there were those who were at the bottom of the pyramid. And looking at them then links us back, in case you thought it was forgotten, to what was highlighted at the end of the last section, where we spoke of the impact of agriculture, basically the seasons of drought and migrations across the region. So let's finish the thought. The kingdom's climate meant that during the drought periods especially, there would be an influx of migrants from the neighboring area who would come to find work in Lundu. They came as farmhands or domestic workers. Lundu's landscape was such that in, in that period, it was able to flourish and take advantage of the dry lands where the people grew and harvested commercial goods such as cotton. So those who migrated during the seasons of hardship in their lands came and worked the lands to make their money and then went back home at the end of the season. Then there were other laborers, those who did not have the same level of freedom to be fair. They tended to be servants who had been captured during a military campaign, others who were fugitives from war, and others who were sold into labor as payment for a debt, and others still who had the misfortune of being born into it. What has been clear, though, is that the Lundu General Society has a very interesting mix of people and cultures. This, however, did not seem to dilute their religious beliefs the same way it also didn't dilute their cultural matrilineal society. I think that's a nice place to end part one. So let's just stop here. And as we wind up part one, let's see what else was going on in the world before we bring it home. So between 1592 and 1598, Korea, with the help of the Ming Dynasty of China, repelled two Japanese invasions. In 1605, the king of Goa, a kingdom in South Sulawesi, which is in today's Indonesia, converted to Islam. In 1641, the Irish Rebellion, which was a Catholic-led uprising in Ireland, the roots of which was derived from the colonization that followed the Tudor conquest of Ireland, happened. In 1680, the Pueblo revolt drove the Spanish out of New Mexico, and, up until, and they did so until 1692. This was an uprising of most of the indigenous Pueblo people against the Spanish colonizers in the province of Santa Fe de Nuevo, Mexico. And now let's bring it home. Afriwatu, we are almost at the last stage of this magnificent trip, trio of civilizations and 
Honestly, wow. I feel that even with part two coming up, there's so much more to unpack that we could hear, but we'll just leave it there. The interplay between the Kalonga, Undi, Lundu has been one that till now are so many new and exciting things that are discovered each and every time. And what I personally love is that there's never an end. It is always a path with many, 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 many detours, each as important as the last. And that is but a teeny tiny example of the greatness of this continent as each and every civilization that has been shared on the Afriwetu platform challenges how history is absorbed and how we are conditioned to look at it in only one frame or lens. But these particular ancestors really helped in challenging that and it has been such an eye-opening experience. I know I say that every time and every single time is true. I do hope that you've enjoyed this journey as much as I have, and I hope that it gets you to do your own deeper research. And until next time, Mubarikiwe! Choka, ni kumango bela mbanda 